You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. You haven't turned there already. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. As Pastor Alec mentioned, we are looking at this unprecedented, unique vision of God written down by the prophet Isaiah. Let me remind everyone that we, this morning, are engaging right now as we read God's word. It's no formality. God is speaking to his people, and we, by his grace, are standing under his word and asking that his word would impact us and shape us for his glory and our joy. You read these first eight verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Verse eight, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. This is God's holy word. Please be, please be seated. We are continuing in our series on congregational singing this morning, and this is our final sermon in what we hope has been a helpful series for us. The aim of our time together has been to discover from the scriptures why God's people sing. Particularly in a congregational setting, why do we sing? Why are we commanded to sing? Why do we do it Sunday after Sunday? It's something you're familiar with if you've been in and around church. Why are there over 400 explicit references to singing in the Bible? Why does God command his people in the Old and the New Testament over 50 times to sing. It's a command from God to sing. The answer is why. 
Well, we've learned the first time we gather, we learned that congregational singing not only honors God and glorifies his name, but it also edifies the church. As we hear the voices of the saints proclaiming the good news of the gospel together in song, the church is edified. I don't know about you, but I love closing my mouth at, for times, just listening to the voices of the saints lift their praise to God to be defiant against sin and the devil, to refuse to be hopeless in a world that is full of chaos. So we sing not only to bring glory to God, but it also edifies the church. Paul says we are to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. And as we do this, we are engaging in the ministry of the word. Secondly, we learn from Moses' song in Exodus 15 that we sing praises to God because of who he is. Because of his very nature that is revealed to us in Holy Scripture, we sing because of who God is. And we sing because of what God has done. He has rescued us from our pursuing enemies. He has allowed us to walk on dry ground. We sing to God because of who he is and what he's done. And we sing to God because of what he will do when he finally brings us home with him in glory. And then last week, we, we learned from the Psalms that there is a song to sing in every season of life. We sing hymns of high praise because God is worthy. But we also sing songs of low lament because life is often hard and suffering is real. We learn that the song book of the Bible, this book of Psalms, provides a song for God's people in every season of life. Now, this morning, as we turn our focus to the text before us in Isaiah chapter 6, every good composition, every good musical composition ends with a crescendo, a high point. And so we'll look to the to end our little series on singing by setting our gaze on perhaps the greatest picture of God's majesty in all of the Bible. And that is Isaiah's vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6. There is simply nothing like this vision in all of the Bible. This is a crescendo to answer the question, why do God's people sing? We don't need to look any further than Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, in my opinion, is the peak, the crest of why God's people lift their voices to him. Isaiah's vision of God in chapter 6 has stunned the church for a millennia. And I pray that in our time together this morning and our time gathering as a church beyond this moment, we too would be captivated and compelled to worship as we behold this king. And if you're a note taker, to begin our time, we'll look first at what captivated the senses of Isaiah. If you read this passage carefully, Isaiah is giving an, an eyewitness account of what he's seeing, a vision. And his senses are captivated, what he sees and what he hears and what he feels. And so that's the first movement in this vision, the captivated senses of Isaiah. But before we get to the senses, look at just the first part of verse 1 that sets up this vision. Verse 1, Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died... Now stop there for just a moment. King Uzziah, 
reigned in Israel for just over 50 years. Generally speaking, he was a good king. The nation of Israel reigned in prosperity, and there was relative peace in the land while Uzziah was the king. But like the kings before Uzziah and like many kings after Uzziah, Uzziah rebelled against God. And we learn in 2 Kings that God struck Uzziah with leprosy, and Isaiah died. And the question for us is, why is Isaiah opening with that phrase, in the year that King Uzziah died? Well, it is helpful time, timing, context. When Isaiah saw this vision of God, it was the same year that King Uzziah died. Perhaps that's all that's going on is its mere context. But I think as we keep reading, you'll discover that there's more going on as to why Isaiah mentions this earthly king, Uzziah. He mentions Uzziah to provide a contrast between earthly kings and this heavenly king that he is about to describe for us. This heavenly king who is high and lifted up, who is unmatched, who doesn't die like Uzziah, but who reigns matchless in authority. So in the year that King Uzziah died, let's keep going. What does Isaiah see? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. It's important to note, we're going to go into detail into the seraphim and what he sees upon a throne, but it's important to note that God is allowing Isaiah to see a manifestation of God. This is a vision of God to catch a glimpse of what it is like to be in his presence. And God himself is the one initiating this vision. And what does he see? First, he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Isaiah sees a king, but not like an earthly king, not like Uzziah. This king is high and lifted up. It's interesting in the Hebrew, normally it would be the throne that would elevate the king. Right? That's why you put a king on a throne and there's steps that ascend the throne and you want the, that king to feel weighty. When you come into the chambers of the king, you want to feel how unkingly you are. And so the throne would lift up the king. That is not what's going on in Hebrew here. This king, this vision is not the throne which elevates the king. But in this vision, it's the king who elevates the throne. In other words, this heavenly king needs no pedestal. He needs nothing to elevate himself. He is himself high and lifted up. It is not the throne that's high and lifted up. It's the king who's high and lifted up. The throne is a mere symbol of his kingly authority. It's not the means of his elevation. In and of himself, he is high and lifted up. 
So Isaiah sees the king on a throne and then his eyes cascade off the throne. His eyes begin to widen a bit. And look at the last part of verse one. Isaiah says, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You would expect Isaiah to say it filled the kingdom or the, or the castle or the quarters. It says he fills the temple. So this is not only a king, beloved, but also a priest who resides in a temple. A king, yes, but a king who intercedes. A king who mediates. A king who intervenes on behalf of those in his kingdom. As another author writes, this is the throne room of a palace temple of the king, the inner sanctum dedicated to the dwelling of God. This is a holy of holies. And it's occupied by a priest king. So he sees a king on a throne and he sees the train of his robe filling this temple. What else does Isaiah see? Look at verse two. Above him stood the seraphim. What on earth is a seraphim? How many times have you thought of a seraphim this week? How many times have you said that word in your life? What is a seraphim? I don't know. (laughs) It's some kind of an angel. The word seraphim literally translates burning ones. Flaming ones. That's what seraphim means which of course is appropriate to picture burning angels surrounding this priest king. It's appropriate because God is often described as a consuming what? Fire. His holiness is often depicted as unapproachable heat. And so Isaiah sees these burning angelic beings above this king priest radiating the burning holiness of God. And it says each had six wings, which is an incredible sight to think of. With two, they covered their face. Why? No doubt because they felt unworthy to behold the king. So they covered their face with two. They covered their feet. Why? No doubt because in his presence they knew they were on holy ground. And with two, they flew. So Isaiah sees the Lord. Like a priest king, he sees him high and lifted up. And the train of this priest king fills the temple and surrounding God are angels radiating the burning heat of God's holiness. What a vision. Nothing like it in all the Bible. That's what he sees. What does Isaiah hear? He's captivated by his senses. What does he hear? Look at verse 3. And one, that is one seraphim, one flaming, burning angel called to another burning angel and said, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, his kavod, glory, weight. In the inner sanctum of this palace temple with burning angels surrounding the throne, what does Isaiah hear? Singing. Singing. One seraphim would call to the other and they would say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, of his weight, of his magnitude. Listen, this is the one instance. When you're reading the Bible and there is a one of one, meaning this is the only time this word is ever mentioned or this phrase is ever mentioned or this person is ever mentioned. When there is a one of one, it is very important to know why. Why is it so important? Listen, this is the one instance in all of the Old Testament where a triple superlative is used. All throughout the Old Testament, double superlatives are used. You know what I mean by a superlative. So if it was pure gold, the Old Testament, the Hebrew author would say it's gold, gold. If it was a deep pit and the Hebrew author wanted to communicate to the listeners just how deep it was, it would say deep, deep. Obviously in ancient Hebrew, there's no highlighters, there's no underline, there's no exclamation point. So you use a double superlative, gold, gold, heat, heat, deep, deep. But this is the only time in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, where a triple superlative is used. Here in Isaiah 6, in the song of the seraphim, we hear them sing that God is not just holy. He's not just holy, holy, but he's holy, holy, holy. In the song of the seraphim, they are telling us that God is so uniquely different from his creation that any conventional way to describe his uniqueness simply won't do. They make up grammar to try to describe how holy God is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full filled with his glory. That's what they hear. That's what Isaiah hears. But he not only saw, he not only heard, but Isaiah also felt something. Look at verse four. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. The song of the burning angels was so fierce and so loud that it shook the very foundations of the threshold, that is the entrance, the door to this palace temple. And it was filled with smoke. Throughout the Old Testament, the divine presence of God is often accompanied by shaking and smoke. You'll remember the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the people who were down below at the bottom at the base of the mountain while Moses was up receiving the law, they were terrified. Why? Because the ground was shaking. 
and the mountain was filled with smoke. The psalmist describes the anger of God as severe shaking and smoke coming from his nostrils. But why is it shaking at the threshold, the entrance, the doorway? The shaking at the threshold or the entrance communicated to Isaiah that although you are able to see what's going on inside, you may not come in. You may not come in. I remember when I was seven or eight, we went through the San Andreas Fault earthquake, the Landers quake. It was 7.6. And outside of a few people who described it as fun (laughs) going through that, it was not fun. The shaking was terrifying. You wanted to get away from the shaking. You did not want to run toward the shaking. You wanted to run away from the shaking. And that's what's happening here in Isaiah's vision. You may see Isaiah inside what's going on, but you may not come in. Nearly all of Isaiah's senses now are captivated. He sees a king high and lifted up and the train of his robe filling the temple. He hears the burning angel singing, holy, holy, holy. He feels the foundations of the earth shaking. So what's Isaiah's response to his captivated senses? Does he want more? Oh yes, give me more? No. Isaiah's captivation, listen, quickly turns to terror. He's terrified at what he sees, at what he hears, and what he feels. And so this is point two, movement two in the vision, Isaiah's confession. So from Isaiah's captivation to now Isaiah's confession. Look at verse five. And Isaiah writes, and I said, woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You would think, perhaps, that Isaiah's first reaction would be to join in the singing to join in the choir of the seraphim and sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God. But this is not his reaction. Instead, he is terrified. And the ESV translates in verse five, he says, the ESV translates, woe is me for I am lost. That word is weakly translated in the ESV. Dama is the Hebrew word. It means I am ruined. I'm I'm destroyed in the presence of God's holiness. Isaiah can't sing. He can't sing along with the seraphim because he is ruined. He is destroyed in the presence of God's holiness. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why does he mention his lips? Because if the mouth reveals the abundance of one's heart, as Christ taught us, 
then Isaiah cannot sing about the holiness of God because his heart is shot through with sin. He can't sing. He's convicted. I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't join the choir. I can't sing the song. And it's interesting, up to this point in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, the prophet, has been announcing judgment on God's people for betraying their covenant with Yahweh. Isaiah, rightfully so, has been the prophet of God pronouncing judgment and warning against God's people who are straying from him. But now Isaiah himself is confronted with the holiness of God. And what's he concerned about? The sins of others? Nope. He says, woe is me. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Yes, I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. I've been prophesying at them for five chapters, but this is about my uncleanness. One commentator writes, he says, in the presence of God, listen, in the presence of God, degrees of sin become irrelevant. In the presence of God, degrees of sin. Well, I just do this little thing. It was just a little white lie. It was just the parking meter. It was just the whatever. It was the little thing. I'm not murdering things. I'm not killing humans. In the presence of God's holiness, degrees of sin matter not. He goes on, quote, it is the holiness of God which reveals to us our true condition, not comparison with others. Beloved, I believe this is Satan's deadliest ploys in the church and outside of the church. And that is for you and I to make judgments regarding the goodness of our souls or the goodness of our lives by comparing our lives to others. If Satan can get you comparing your life to others, he's done with you. You're toast. And you will love to watch the news and you will love to watch tragedy and you will love to watch the sins of others because you think that's atoning for yourself. Leave them alone. That is a ploy from the pit of hell comparison and finding peace in comparison. At least I'm not doing that. The Bible, beloved friends, visitors, the Bible instead does not compare. The Bible does not compare your goodness horizontally with other human beings. No, the Bible instead compares your goodness, your holiness, and mine vertically. We are held to the standard of God's holiness. So the spectrum of sin doesn't matter in God's economy. So let's you and I, right now, stop. We're going to just make a covenant. I'm going to stop comparing myself with others to try to find peace in my heart. The Bible does not teach that. And if it's true then, if this is true, that we are now 
brought into this sanctum and our holiness has to match God's or we're done, we're ruined, then like Isaiah, to stand before the burning seraphim in the holiness of God. There's no other word to describe what would happen to us. Dema, ruined, destroyed. Before you could even get a plea out of your mouth, you're done. Unless you are cleansed. First, Isaiah is captivated. Oh, I see this in the church all the time. Oh, I'm just, glory, glory, I'm captivated. I'm, it's amazing. There's miracles happening in my life, miracles happening in my life. And then God comes in and says, I, I won't just captivate you. I'm not for your entertainment. And he comes into the inner parts of your heart and he begins to convict. Which leads to confession. Isaiah says, woe is me. Oh, what a gift. What a gift to know when one is woed. He confesses his unworthiness to sing. And now, point three, final point, Isaiah is cleansed. Oh, there is great hope. Look at verses six and seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. Let's read that slower. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Verse seven, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Notice with me what doesn't happen in this scene. The seraphim don't show up to Isaiah and say, okay, it's time to ascend the steps of the throne. It's time to move your way to God. That's not what happens. Isaiah is not asked to ascend the steps of the throne to receive his pardon. Isaiah is not asked to go and do more good deeds in hopes to outweigh the bad deeds. Isaiah is not even given the law whereby he is to go and earn his holiness before God. That is not what happens. No, instead, Isaiah stands there and receives. He stands and he receives. A live coal, a burning coal, a hot coal from the heavenly altar, and it's brought to his lips. Remember, he can't sing. And he stands there, and in that receiving, he receives a full pardon. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. It's paid in full. It's satisfied. Calvin writes in his commentary on Isaiah, he says, 
quote, by this figure, therefore, Isaiah was taught that all purity flows from God, end quote. All purity flows from God. The Bible does not say, beloved, that to become holy, one must send their purity up to God. Here's my purity, God. Make me holy by it. No, instead, the Bible teaches here in Isaiah and throughout the scriptures that to become holy, purity must come down. It must come to you. You can only receive it. You can't go earn it. As soon as you try to earn it, you lose it. You've tainted it. It's no longer pure. The only way a human being can become clean is to be made clean by God. Following his cleansing, (laughs) notice the turnaround in the prophet. At the sight of God's holiness, he is, woe is me. I am ruined. I am destroyed. After the cleansing, after the atonement, after the forgiveness of his sins. Notice what, he, what happens in verse 8. Isaiah says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Look whose mouth is now loosed, whose tongue is loosed. Isaiah said, Here I am, what? Send me. Isaiah's voice is unlocked because his heart is cleansed. Send me, God. I will join the choir of the seraphim and I will tell your glory to all who are listening. Here I am. Send me. But it only comes after the cleansing. So why do we sing? This is a series on singing. Why do we sing? We sing because God has touched our lips. This vision in Isaiah is but a foreshadow of what would ultimately take place on another altar called Calvary. Where the eternal Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Son, will be placed upon a Roman cross the heavenly son who for all of eternity had heard a seraphim burning angels declaring to him the eternal son, holy, holy, holy. This son lay speechless, silent on a Roman cross, pinned there by nails, gasping for the very oxygen he created. Why? Because purity flows from God alone. How are we to be cleansed? God's answer, from the cross, from Calvary, from the burning coal of heaven, you will only receive it. You cannot earn it. True cleansing from sin can only come from heaven. Jesus Christ is the burning coal from heaven's altar. He is the one who makes us holy. By his wounds we are what? Healed. So why do we sing? We sing because God sits upon a throne and he is high and lifted up. 
We sing because the train of his robe fills the temple. We sing to join the chorus of the seraphim singing, holy, 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 the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We sing because our lips have been touched by the burning coals of Calvary. We sing because our hearts have been cleansed by God. We sing because we have a song to sing. We sing because we are sent. We sing because the whole world needs to hear the songs of grace. One of the reasons, and we haven't talked much about this, one of the reasons we sing corporately is a witness to the watching world. This is a public forum where anybody can come. And what a joy to think of them coming in wondering, what is this chorus? Why do they keep ascribing glory and honor not to themselves like every other song does? But their songs go up and out. Our public singing is a, is a witness. We sing because we are sent Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we sing to the Lord in pure defiance against the enemy and our flesh. Do you know that singing hymns of praise is a defiant act? When we sing, we're refusing to lose hope. We're refusing to believe that there are bones, the bones of Christ in a tomb 2,000 years ago. We refuse to believe that. We sing because the resurrection happened. We refuse to be hopeless and purposeless in this world. So we sing those melodies into our hearts. We sing because Christ died. We sing because Christ was raised. We sing because heaven has come down and touched our lips. That is why we sing. Father in heaven, would you sow this vision of Isaiah deep into our hearts and minds and convince all of us of the salient ultimate truth that we will. It is not a matter of if, it is a matter of when we will see this king. We will see this king. The question is what will happen to us when we do? And so I pray, God, would you Touch our lips with your burning coal. Would you cleanse us from all of our iniquity? Finally, would you convince those who are still trying to throw their purity up at you, hoping that you will be pleased by it? Would, would you convince them that that is a futile endeavor? But would you give them eager hearts to receive your free pardon? Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.